Okay, everybody, it's time to open up God's Word together. If you have a copy of Scripture, I'd encourage you to take it out and turn with me once again to the book of Titus, chapter 3, here in just a moment. Titus, chapter 3. One thing I will encourage you on right now, you've no doubt noticed, we don't have our, our pew Bibles here for you to just grab if you don't have your own copy of Scripture. So, it's really important now, as it always has been, to bring our Bibles to church But it's not only important because you want to have a copy of Scripture, but it's also important because as you process God's Word to us each Sunday, as you process the sermon, you want to do it not only audibly through your ears, you want to process visually too. It can be a big help to look at the text in your own copy of Scripture that you read during the week. To look at that text. Because I'm here to tell you, you will have visual cues that will remind you of things about that text the next time you come to it, when you read your Bible. And so I'd encourage you to bring your Bibles to church on Sundays and to look at the text with us as we read. Now, if you don't have a copy, that's perfectly okay. You're going to hear everything read aloud, so you don't have to worry about that. But I want to encourage you to bring your copies of Scripture every Sunday to church. Now, today we come to the end of the book of Titus. We've spent eight weeks in this wonderful book, and each time I come to the end of a book of the Bible and preaching, uh, I feel a sense of gratitude to God and a sense of uh, thankfulness for what He's given to us through this book. And so before we get into our text itself, I want to spend just a moment with you thanking the Lord for all that He's done for us and all that He's spoken to us through this wonderful book of Titus in these past eight weeks. So will you pray with me real quick? Dear Lord, we thank you so much right now for the word of the book of Titus. It is breathed out by you, and through your Holy Spirit, you inspired the Apostle Paul to write it down, and we thank you that you did. We thank you that you gave him the occasion to write to his brother, Titus, his brother in the faith and his co-worker in the gospel, and we thank you that you have preserved these words for us through thousands of years so that we could read them and benefit from them today. God, we thank you for all of the timely lessons that you have given to us through this book over the past eight weeks, but also the the timeless lessons that you've given to us. Thank you for all the ways that it has pointed us to Jesus and to the gospel and spurred us on, motivated us toward good works in our Christian lives. And so we thank you for it this morning as we come to the end of it. And Lord willing, God, we ask that that you would continue to do this for us week in and week out through other parts of your holy word. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So like I said, we're coming to the end of the book of Titus this week. This will mark eight weeks through the book of Titus, and I'll read up to the end of the book today. And then next week, Lord willing, and we say Lord willing now with a little bit more meaning, perhaps, than we used to say it, right? God has taught us to say, Lord willing, because nothing is certain. But Lord willing, next week, we will begin the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians next week, Lord willing. But until then, we're going to finish Titus. Today's sermon is entitled, Distracted and Divided. The idea is this. If Satan can distract us from what matters, as Christians, as a church... And he can divide us from each other. He's well on his way to destroying this church. 
if he can distract us from what matters and he can divide us from one another, then he can gain a foothold to destroy the church. Every three years or so, give or take, I reread my favorite book outside of the Bible. It's The Lord of the Rings. I reread the whole thing about every three years. I love this book. And if you're not familiar with the story, the, the driving force behind the plot <clears throat> is this quest to destroy a ring, an evil ring. It's like the source of all evil in the world. It's, it's a metaphor for sin, the ring is. Because if, if you try to use it or if you try to keep it for yourself, it'll destroy you. It'll turn you evil. And so all of the, the good people of the world, all of the good creatures of the world, they, they come together to decide to destroy this ring. But to do so, they have to go on a secret journey and take it into the evil land where it was made. Right? And so the, the plot is pretty much driven from the second book on by two little hobbits, Frodo and Sam, who are best friends, taking the ring into the territory of the enemy to destroy it without his knowledge. But as they go, they, they meet a creature who had the ring for hundreds of years. His name's Gollum, and the ring almost destroyed him. And as they go along with Gollum, Gollum is showing them how to get where they need to go because they don't know how to get there. But in the meantime, he's also wedging himself in between them. Frodo and Sam, best friends, are being pitted against one another, divided from each other by the evil creature Gollum. And he, he almost ruins the whole thing by turning them against one another. He divided them. He distracted them. For those of you who may watch sports, how many sports teams can we think of over the years that could have been absolute dynasties, could have won championship after championship after championship had it not been for the distraction and division among their star players that broke up that team? Or how many marriages has Satan ended by distracting the spouses from what truly matters and ultimately dividing what God had united. If Satan can distract and divide us, he's well on his way to destroying this church. And so that's the topic of our text today as we read Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 8. I'm going to read down to verse 15, the end of the book. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you, Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now as I read through those verses, I want to focus in this morning on verses 9 through 11. 
verses 9 through 11. And from those three verses, I believe God is giving us two powerful exhortations that we need to walk away with this morning. Number one is don't get distracted from what matters. Church, don't get distracted from the things that matter. Look back at verse 9 one more time with me. Notice the theme of not getting distracted here. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable and worthless. Don't get distracted. Don't waste your time, brothers and sisters. Don't waste your time on things that don't ultimately matter. Satan is doing his level best right now to distract the church in America and across the world from the things that do matter with things that ultimately will not matter for all eternity. He's doing his best to distract us, to get us to not focus on our mission of making disciples, of preaching the good news of Christ, of loving people in the name of Christ and helping people to find salvation. He's got us distracted on all kinds of other things that will not matter for all eternity. Paul says, don't waste your time on foolish controversies here. See that? Foolish controversies. You might say foolish debates or speculations. Think about all the speculative debates that Christians get into on the Bible that ultimately have no answer, or at least no answer that we can know here and now. No answer that we could know unless God was to providentially tell us. There are all kinds of things that Christians debate and speculate on that ultimately will not matter. When Jesus comes back, the moment He comes back, they will all realize that those things did not matter for all eternity. How many people have you met, Christians, who are obsessed with the fulfillment of prophecy in modern day politics? What is the mark of the beast? Who is the Antichrist? Which seven rulers today are the seven kings in Revelation? If we can figure out when the next blood moon is and stand exactly where the, the temple was and then add however much numbers to that, uh, maybe 144 to that number, and then we can divide it by 12 and turn it on its head, we can predict when Jesus is going to come back. Right? There's all kinds of foolish controversies that Christians are spending their time on. And Satan's got them distracted. But I'm here to tell you, it's not just biblical controversies that are sometimes foolish. It's not just biblical speculations. Avoid cultural controversies, brothers and sisters. Let us avoid cultural controversies that could divide us here in the church. Democrat or Republican. As we come up on an election season, Satan wants to divide us in a number of ways. And one of the ways that he's going to ramp that up in the next three or four months is politics. Democrat or Republican. And I'm here to tell you, it's a foolish controversy that will not matter in eternity. No matter what your political persuasion, you will have brothers and sisters in heaven with you for all eternity that believe the other way. Because it will not matter for all eternity. We are not going to let our church be divided by all of the things that Satan wants to divide us on. Satan is doing the best job he can right now to divide people on political ideas. 
and things that will not matter. To mask or not to mask. You might think a mask is the most important thing in the world right now. And you might also think a mask is the stupidest thing you've ever heard of. But no matter what, if you're in Christ, you're my brother and sister. And I'm not going to let that divide us. I'm not going to let that come between our fellowship. And we're not going to let that divide our church. It's not only political and cultural controversies. Avoid church controversies. Avoid foolish church controversies that will get us off of our mission. Decorating decisions, or the color of the carpet, or the temperature it needs to be in the sanctuary, or traditional versus contemporary worship music. These are all controversies that we can get caught up in in the church. And Satan will get us off of our mission Spending time on things that don't ultimately matter. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, as a church, if we are focused on the glory of God, all these other things will just fade away. If we have a church full of men and women and young people who are in awe of the glory of God, if if you are in awe of the glory of God. You will forget about all those silly things. You'll forget about yourself. Think about it. If you could see the glory of God right now, you wouldn't think a thing about yourself other than maybe I'm sinful. I don't deserve to see this. Right? All those foolish controversies, all our personal preferences, they just fade away if we can focus on the glory of God. God, help us to see your glory right now. Open our eyes right now, this very minute, God, and help us to see. Because if we could see it, none of this other petty stuff would matter. If you find a church full of members who are in awe of the glory of God, you also find a church with little to no controversy on petty issues. Because they're they're all just enthralled with what matters. Can't think about your own petty personal preferences when you're in awe of the glory of God. Now, it's important for us to note, as Paul says, avoid foolish controversies. He says foolish controversies, okay? Some controversies are actually worth wading into, right? We don't avoid all controversies. Sometimes we are called as believers to step into and speak into a controversy that the world is talking about, that the world is divided on. There are some controversies worth wading into. Some church leaders, in an effort to avoid all controversy, will refuse to speak on some issues that need to be spoken on. And then their people, the people of the church, are left to fend for themselves. And oftentimes this means their beliefs start veering off the biblical path. Because they're going to they're get influenced somewhere. They're going to learn from someone and somewhere. And the culture is teaching on controversial issues. And so there are some things that that we are bound, duty-bound by God to speak on. So, for example, we often say things like, there's no place for politics in the church, right? Politics doesn't belong in the pulpit. And there's a sense in which that's true. As we come up on an election, you will not hear me endorsing a candidate. You will not hear me trying to get you to vote for Democrat or Republican or Independent or whatever, right? We're, We're here to teach and preach the Bible, and it's your job to decide how that works itself out in the way that you vote and the politics that that you believe. But there are some political issues that have become political issues that never should have been political issues that we will speak out on. 
And so politics doesn't belong in the church, but you can best believe we're going to speak out on abortion. Politics doesn't belong in the church, but you can best believe if there's an act of genuine racism in this church, myself and the leadership are going to address it head on. We'll be the first to speak out against that. There are some things that get turned political, but Scripture clearly tells us they're, they're, they're bigger than politics. This is not a political issue. It's a moral gospel issue, right? So there are some controversies worth wading into, but Paul says avoid foolish controversies. Now he also says there in verse 9, notice the next thing, avoid genealogies. Now, brothers and sisters, let me tell you, this does not mean the next time you come to a genealogy in your Bible reading, you skip it. That's not what he's saying, okay? Sorry, but not going to let you off the hook right there. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So the next time you come to Matthew chapter 1, read through the genealogy of Jesus. There's important stuff there. God wants you to have it for your joy. All right? Believe it or not, the next time you come in your daily devotions to the book of 1 Chronicles, read the first nine chapters. The first nine chapters are all genealogies. It's one of the hardest portions of Scripture to get through if you want to read through the whole Bible. The first nine chapters of the book of 1 Chronicles is nothing but genealogies. This person's the son of this person, the son of this person, the son of this person. But guess what? All Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture is profitable. Even if you can't see how it could possibly profit you, it's all profitable. So don't skip over your genealogies. That's not what Paul means here. What Paul means when he says avoid genealogies, there were people in Crete and in the churches of those days who were claiming that they were more important than others because of who their granddaddy and their daddy was. Right? Because of their family lineage, they were more important than others, they thought. And so there were people saying, well, why should we listen to Paul and Titus? There's some guys over here that are claiming that they have a more impressive family lineage than, than Paul does, so maybe we should listen to them. Right? Or there were some people saying, I should be more influential in this church because... My great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was such-and-such leader in the nation of Israel. But brothers and sisters, listen. In Christ, your worth is not found in who your ancestors were. Your worth is not found in who your ancestors were. If one of you comes up to me after the service and say, one of your great-great-great-grandfathers was some big celebrity, I'm going to say, congratulations, that's great. Neat. Good for you. It has no bearing in the church, though. No bearing. Did you know that some of the greatest preachers in the history of the church had grandkids who walked away from the faith completely? Did you know that? Some of the greatest preachers in the history of the church, just grandkids, two generations removed, walked away from the faith completely. And on the flip side, some of God's specially chosen people to do great work in his kingdom came from a completely ungodly family. It's not about who your daddy or who your granddaddy was in Christ. That's not where we find our worth. Even more of a modern-day application, sometimes in a, a church, especially churches in the South, this happens, <clears throat> sometimes a family will kind of take over a church. A family. I mean, it's a, a very nasty situation. And if you get on that family's bad side, you're never going to have a voice in that church. And if you're the minister and you get on their bad side, you just... Better start looking for a job already, right? It's family-controlled churches. It's nothing that the Lord wants, 
But it shows, even today, we still put a high priority on our ancestry, our family connections. And so Paul says, don't waste your time on foolish controversies, on genealogies, on dissensions and quarrels about the law. They're not profitable. That's how Satan gets you distracted from the mission. Satan would like nothing more than a big church full of people who are distracted about everything else except for what matters eternally. Satan's totally happy with that. Don't let foolish controversies distract you from making disciples, from helping one another hold on to Jesus, from the truth of God's Word. But it's also important not to get distracted on controversies, genealogies, because they divide. Things like this divide us. And this is the second exhortation I think God is giving us from our text today. Number two, don't allow yourselves to be divided. Don't allow yourselves to be divided. Look back at verse 10. This is essentially what Paul's saying in verse 10. But he's talking about people who do this dividing. Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that a, such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, it's fitting, very fitting, that we're about to start 1 Corinthians next week, Lord willing. And this is a perfect segue into the book of 1 Corinthians, because 1 Corinthians is all about unity. It's a book all about church unity. So this is a really fitting segue. Sometimes in the church, you will find people who like to stir up division. Sometimes in the church, you will encounter someone who likes to stir up division. Now, before you start thinking of other people, and you think, oh yeah, I, I know somebody else like that, let me tell you this. The people who like to stir up division never think they like to stir up division. The people who, who like to divide and stir up division, they would never characterize themselves like that. And so because of that, be really careful of the danger to just automatically think of other people here before you apply it to your own heart. Am I a person who likes to stir up division? I mean, think about it. Human beings are like this. Think about it in your own life. The most dramatic people the people with all the drama around them are always the ones complaining about how much they hate drama, right? Isn't that true? They're always the ones complaining about drama. And those are the people with the most drama around them. Right? We, we don't realize these things about ourselves. We don't characterize ourselves like this. And so let's apply this to our own hearts before we, we automatically think of others. Right? This is something that you've got to do every time you listen to a sermon. Beware the, the pharisaical temptation to just apply all of this stuff in the Bible to someone else before you let it hit your own heart. But sometimes in the church, you will encounter someone who likes to stir up division. And here we're talking about people who encourage those things that we just talked about in verse 9. Foolish controversies, dissensions, quarrels, people who encourage that stuff. This is a kind of person who will try to undermine the elders and the leadership of a church. They will try to stir up doubts about the leadership of the church in private conversations. They'll try to create a faction within the church, a group within the church, 
in private conversations that slowly but surely coalesces around this idea that the leadership, they're, they're not doing their job the right way. They're wrong and we're right. We really know what should happen in a church. Right? This is a person who likes to stir up division. They encourage unbiblical doctrines. This is someone who clearly cares more about themselves than the body as a whole. This is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And I'm here to tell you, if we see this in our church, we are going to defend the unity of our church against it. If we as church leadership see this in our church, we are going to defend the sheep of our congregation and the unity of our congregation against a wolf in sheep's clothing. Verse 10 right here is a hard word, is it not? It's a hard word, but it's a serious one. It's one that we don't need to skirt over. And we need to feel the weight of this. The Lord hates this. When someone enjoys stirring up division amongst Jesus' body, Jesus' bride, the Lord hates this. And I'm not just exaggerating when I say that. Scripture tells us the Lord hates this. Listen to Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 16. In Proverbs 6, it says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And so we've got like a top seven list here of what God hates. Let's see what's on it. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. That's Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. The Lord hates this. This is serious. And so Paul says, warn them once, and then warn them twice. And after that, have nothing to do with them. Now let's talk about the warnings. Warn them once, warn them twice. It's our job, it's our job to approach someone in the church stirring up division and confront the issue, to warn them. Now we are to do so gently and in a spirit of love, out of genuine concern for that person, not just defending your own rights or preferences, but out of genuine concern and love for that person, hoping to turn them away from what they are doing. Out of genuine concern for the body of Christ as a whole, not just for, for myself defending me. And we must have conversations when we go warn people and confront them on this stuff. Conversations. And so warning a divisive person is not making a comment to them as you pass in the hall and then you just leave and you're out and you've done your duty to warn them. No, that's not what we're talking about here. We need conversations. We need a confrontation in gentleness and love. Confrontation is not easy, right? You know what's a lot easier? Talking about them behind their back. That's a lot easier. It'd be a lot easier to go find someone that, that you're good friends with, that you already agree with, and you know is going to be sympathetic to what you're saying, and just talk about them behind their back. You know what's hard? Calling them up and saying, hey, can we meet to talk? I, I have something that is on my heart that I, I need to share with you. And laying it out in love. That takes courage, but that's the way of love. It's our job to confront in love. It's our job to confront them in person. 
not to write an anonymous letter to the elders or to the leadership of the church. Can I just tell you guys something? If I ever receive an anonymous letter about a problem that someone has with someone else in the church, you know what happens to that anonymous letter? Trash. I just throw it in the trash. If you don't have the guts to come and talk to me face to face, or really, if you don't have the guts to come and talk to that person, address that person that you have an issue with, and you want to send an anonymous letter, I have no patience for that. That's going in the trash. Right? We, we are not a group of people who talk behind each other's back. We're not a group of people who are catty. Right? We're, we're going to face up to each other when we have issues. And we're going to tell each other. If you sin against me, I'm going to tell you about it. If I sin against you, come and tell me about it. And let me hear it. Let me repent. Help me. Help me to repent of my sin, right? Instead of tacking on more sin on top of it with gossip. And so, Paul says, warn them once and warn them twice. Then he says, after this, have nothing else to do with them. This is a hard word. Paul says in Romans 16, 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Now, don't move directly to this step of avoiding. Some of us don't warn at all. Some of us don't confront at all. We just move directly to the step of avoiding. No, you, you warn first. You go to your brother and sister first. But then it says, avoid them. There comes a point where if a person refuses to change or repent, even after you've confronted them multiple times in love, there's nothing more you can do. There comes a point. This seems very much like the steps that Jesus gives us for church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. I'll read these for you. You don't have to turn there. But Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15, Jesus gives us steps that we should take as a church for church discipline. When someone, one of our, one of our own, one of our members, is living in unrepentant sin. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, we're not talking here about a church that shuns someone because they don't like them. Because we don't really like their personality type. We don't really get along with them. They don't fit in. This is not what we're talking about. It's not being catty. It's not being click-ish. This is when a person has voluntarily submitted themselves to the elders of this church. Joined this church as a member. Committed to the body. And committed to serving and supporting the body and supporting the church leadership. And when a person like that starts down a pattern of sin and is confronted on it multiple times in love and yet refuses to change, like Adam was talking about earlier, well, at that point, Paul says, avoid them. Have nothing more to do with them. And so here in verses 9 through 11, Paul tells us, don't be distracted from what matters. Don't waste your time on things that don't matter for eternity. And don't allow yourselves 
to be divided. If Satan can distract and divide us, he's well on his way to destroying this church. But the Gospel focuses and unites us. The Gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified keeps our focus on what matters. It reorients us back to what matters. That's part of the reason why we do communion each week. Communion is a type of reorienting ourselves back on what truly matters because it's so easy for us to get distracted. Every week, let's remember what really matters, what matters for all eternity. When we gather as a church each week, we're reminded that some of these things out in the world that we think are such a big deal will not matter in eternity. They are temporary. But the things that we talk about here, the things that we encourage each other with here, these things will matter for all eternity. And so don't get your focus off of what truly matters. Let's focus on the gospel. Let's let the gospel reorient us back time and time and time again to what truly matters. But also, let's let the gospel unite us. The gospel protects us from the division that Satan wants to cause. Because the gospel is powerful enough to unite people that have real significant differences. The gospel is the only thing in the world that is powerful enough to unite people who have differences that are so big and so real and so present that they could not be united in any other situation in the world. The gospel has the power to do that. In Christ, we are united to people that are different than us in all kinds of different walks of life. In Galatians 3.28, Paul tells us there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus died, not just to pay for your sins, but to unite us to one another. Go home sometime and read Ephesians chapter 2. There you will see Jesus died to unite people of different races to one another. What a timely lesson for us today. The gospel is the only thing that can truly unite us across very real differences. We don't minimize the differences. When Paul says you are all one in Christ, he's not saying there are no differences. He's not saying we don't have male and female anymore. He's saying being male or being female does not divide you anymore. In the gospel, you are one. He's saying being a Jew and being a Gentile, being black or being white, does not have to divide you in the gospel. Yeah, the differences are there and they're real. We're not closing our eyes and pretending they don't exist. No, it's, it's, it's much more powerful if we see that the differences are real and we see that Christ is more powerful than any force in the universe to unite us across those very real differences. Jesus didn't just die to take care of your sins. He died to unite us to one another. Let's pray. God, thank you for your words in Titus and thank you for your word to us today. God, we pray that you would protect us from the distractions and the division that Satan wants to cause. We pray that you would unite us around your son, Jesus. We pray that you would give us such a vision of your glory and the beauty and glory of Christ 
that all the things that would divide us and distract us would just fall away. Focus us. Unite us around Jesus. Help us to see Your glory and behold it together. And I pray that as we are united, I pray that people would come into this place and see this group of Christians united, even amongst our differences, and they would say, this can't happen anywhere else. What in the world is this? How does this happen? And they would long for the power of the Gospel in their own lives as well. God, transform us by the Gospel of Your Son, Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.